Hello and welcome to episode 111 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. I am so glad that you have joined me back here today. I want to start off with a tiny addendum to the last podcast. I was talking about mountain camp feeding, which I am mostly familiar with in the form of people just pouring dry sugar on the inner cover around the hole and calling it good. A wonderful patron from Missouri wrote me on Patreon and said, you know, the only way he was familiar with it was putting it on top of newspaper and setting the newspaper on the the top bars. And then I remembered this because it's been a long time since I've done mountain camp or paid any attention to it. And he is completely right. I do believe that's probably the more common technique, which does somewhat take care of my complaint, the other, the complaint I had in the last podcast, which is that to reach the sugar, the bees have to leave the cluster, which in my opinion is a no-no in winter emergency feeding because it kind of defeats the purpose of those, of letting the bees have definite access to food, even when it might be too cold outside and in, even inside the hive for them to move around. So anyway, dry sugar on top of a piece of newspaper right on the top bars of the upper box, that form of mountain camp feeding does get around the access problem. The problem that I had mentioned, because I'm usually only emergency feeding little tiny baby colonies, they don't put off enough moisture in their breath to reliably give the moisture that would make that dry sugar turn into a candy-like substance, which is what it will do in a full-size hive from just from the exhalation of the bees. And no doubt from the outside air, if you are in a, a moist climate, which I am, well, I'm supposed to be in a moist climate. It's been very dry for my moist climate. But again, I've had some issues with a lack of moisture in these tiny colonies being able to access the sugar bricks. You're probably going to hear some weird little noises in this podcast because I have upgraded from my blanket fort. Now I am in a egg crate fort. <laughs> an egg crate. I had an old egg crate. I don't know must have used it on some bed in the past. And I'm like, hey, I can build myself a little a starter booth. So I have a bit of egg crate set up in a U shape on my desk. That's my half step until I get my little recording booth going. I had all these plans to make episode 111 a think out loud episode about the factors that I believe have contributed to my beekeeping success and sustainability since 2010. And I want to say by success, I mean having living bees, healthy bees, and being able to produce some honey and some nukes most every year. And by sustainable, I mean not having to buy or or catch replacement bees since 2010. And I was jotting down some notes of just factors that I feel like may have made a difference. Some I know made a difference. I don't know how much difference. And others, I'm not sure how much of a difference it makes, but I feel like it does. So I'm just going to do a talk through of that. And since I have skipped topics and came up with something that I just couldn't wait to tell you, I think I'll do that one as the bonus podcast coming up next week for the patrons, since they keep this show on the air for everyone. I wanted to give them something I hope will be inspirational. Another thing I am starting over on Patreon is occasionally having phone conversations with the patrons who've been with me a while. Hopefully they have a few years of bee experience and If they want to have a phone conversation about their bees, I'm starting to do that maybe once or twice a month. 
The first person I'm going to be talking to is a listener down in Houston. So I'm just fascinated and cannot wait to hear what they've got going on down there. So anyway, what got me distracted off my actual plan and notes? I stumbled across a YouTube and it is on the YouTube page of the Sustainable Beekeeping Guild of Michigan. They That club is producing some really wonderful content. And what I'm going to do is if you will go over to the Patreon page, and this, this is free and available to everyone, I'm going to have the link there. I shared it with the patrons week before last. I'm going to put a link in the show notes that goes to the Patreon page, but there will be a free post open to everyone that has the links of that YouTube channel and some that I am either looking forward to looking at or have found value in already because I want to share that resource with everyone. And on that topic, the reason I had posted last week to the patrons is that that guild is having a virtual bee conference this winter. It is very inexpensive and the speakers look great. And the beauty of this virtual conference, not to mention that you don't have to travel and spend all that money and, you know, it's getting to be the season, all that exposure to viruses out there to go to a conference, but you can get the content. And the part I love is that I can watch the recordings later because I just love to watch a thing and then ponder on it a while before I watch anything else. I get overwhelmed if I take in too much at one sitting. My brain gets too excited and just starts going squirrel, squirrel, squirrel. (laughs) So anyway, I'm very excited about that conference. I cannot wait to hear some of the speakers they have lined up. The great thing, if you join that that Beekeepers Guild, which anyone can do, it's very inexpensive, like $24. 20 to $25, something like that. If you join, then you get access to their archives, the private archives of some of their presentations. That's been great. I I joined. I'm a proud member, even though from North Carolina, not Michigan, but they are doing good work up there. And then the other thing is if you sign up for the conference, which I mean, you can get all of this for under under 50 bucks. Then you get access to the past conference recordings. You know, I was putting my credit card in so that I can look at those before the winter conference, which I think might be the first week of February, something like that. While I was a rambling around in their content, I saw a presentation by Zach Lamas. He is a bee researcher. I mean, all around great guy, but a bee researcher out of the University of Maryland. And I believe he's working at the Beltsville Bee Lab as a research fellow right now. He has some of the most interesting research questions. Now, some of it is a, a deep dive, but his his the questions he seeks to answer in research are really fascinating. This is about his current ongoing study about using drone sampling, adult drone sampling, to get mite counts in the early summer, late spring, early summer, and then trying to correlate them with what that implies the overall mite count will be in the colony come fall, when the impact of the mites and the viruses they carry really hit the colony the hardest. Already he's uncovered some interesting things, because there are these factoids that have lived in my brain, but I've I've never connected them before. One, he started off the presentation by talking about, you know, we're always told that mites get on the nurse bees. I mean, that's those are the bees we sample. If you do a mite count, you are supposed to get the nurse bees, the shake of nurse bees, you get it out of the brood nest. 
so that basically you will know how infected the caretakers of the brood are with mites. And if they have lots of mites, the other implication is that they very well could be spreading virus within the hive and to each other. And again, all those things tend to hit crescendo in the fall. That's the the make or break point of a hive. What I've found is sometimes if a colony has had a higher mite count, but it's still looking good in fall, what often happens in the winter is they, they peter out over time. Basically, they're just not healthy enough to live the extra long bee lifespan that winter bees are supposed to live in order to get that colony through to spring. So what happens is if you have early die-off of, the, of those winter bees, then every hard cold snap, that cluster is getting more and more unprotected, getting smaller and smaller, which then every additional cold snap takes another layer off of that cluster off the outside, and soon the population dwindles down to pretty much nothing. I've talked to a lot of people who they think they've had colony collapse disorder because they open up their winter hive and there's just not a bee to speak of in there. I think something that a lot of beginners don't think about is that it's not that often that the entire colony dies at once. So even if it is mites and viruses and all that type of thing, that may do something like what I discussed about simply limiting the lifespan, which reduces the cluster, which means there's not enough bees to either survive wicked cold, you know, come February, or especially in more northerly places where they've still got to hold out for a couple more months, they have to not only have the population to survive the cold, but then to go forward in the spring, they have to have the population to rear a brood nest to maturity, which you know how long the worker bees are in their little cells. So it's it's not a fast process. I've really observed hives that technically speaking made it through the winter, but then have a terrible time getting started simply because, I shouldn't say simply because, outwardly, because they don't have enough bees to do a successful, sizable brood nest. And then in the background, the stuff that I can't see is what the impact of the viruses that they may have gotten from that heavy mite load. So this is that thing where as a person who doesn't use chemicals, there's a part of me that would just like to go, I don't need to do mite counts because I'm not going to use chemical treatments. But the truth is I use biological and mechanical treatments. And by that, I mean just manipulating the hive in a way that like a brood break that cuts back on the mite count. Obviously, that's quite a gentle tool, a gentle and slow-moving tool compared to a chemical treatment. So that's one reason why I have to keep on the health of a hive pretty closely, even though I'm not going to use chemical treatments, or maybe especially because I'm not going to use chemical treatments. Back in the early days of people trying to get away from chemical treatments, there was a school of thought that was like, I want to breed a bee or find a bee that can tolerate a high mite load. And there actually were those colonies they, that you could test them. They would have a high mite load and they were, were still going strong at that time. But as the research began to show us what the implication of the viral impact, the viruses that they carry, then that shifts that because you definitely... Even if you have a colony that can handle the, so you may have that high mite count, they may still be going strong, but as the viruses have developed and gotten worse in some cases, and and more viruses have, have been identified, then a colony that tolerates a high mite load, and by that I mean the bees 
don't have the hygienic impulse to get those mites out and down, then that type of genetics is not going to do well. And the viral impact is unfortunately getting worse and worse. Part of that is moving bees all over the country. You think about it as a, well, I, I think about it because as a nurse with an interest in epidemiology, when you truck a huge proportion of the American bee colonies to California for almonds and you put them all those millions and millions and millions of bees in a small area with very inadequate nutrition since they're working on monocrops, the almonds. If you wanted a recipe for how to make viruses meaner and more awful, that would pretty much be the recipe. I mean, you're essentially, you're, it's like creating a refugee camp of people that are nutritionally and physically stressed, cram them in, and then see what spreads around. I mean, that is really what almond pollination on the downside of what it does to the bees. And then the worst blow is they mix it all up, get all the best viruses going in the colony. And where do those colonies go? They come back to the rest of the United States. They overwinter in southern climates. And then a lot of those producers produce packages and nukes from those same bees. And so this is one of the real drawbacks to getting mass-produced nukes and packages. I encourage you to be thinking if you're going to need bees or if you want to expand and you're not willing to wait on making splits, like I'm going to teach you lots about this winter, and you're planning on a package or a nucleus in the spring, please start finding them. Actually, I hope you've already found them, but start finding them now from your local producers. And the thing, just like honey, the thing you have to look out for is just because it's just because it's being sold by a local producer does not mean that those bees are produced locally and that's something real important to ask there are many suppliers that appear to be local but then when you find out it's like they're buying giant wholesale quantities of nukes or packages from down south somewhere and then they're trucking them up and selling and distributing to people. Now on one hand, it's hard for new beekeepers to get started without getting one of that types of nukes or packages. Unfortunately, it's that's the type of nuke or package that is least likely to survive long term. So it's a real catch twenty two. The solution in my opinion until you can get to where you just make more bees for yourself than you know what to do with and start supplying your community and club. Until then, the next best thing is to get involved in an area bee club, even if you aren't particularly fond of them, even if you aren't going to use the more typical methods used in that club. You can make contacts, you can find other people who are working on sustainable beekeeping like you are, and you can get in the pipeline for locally produced bees and nukes. Because if someone said, okay, I'll give you a nuke and a package from one of these mass distributors, or you can have a nuke and a package from a beekeeper within a couple of counties of you that's a definite chemical treatment beekeeper, I would take that local nuke because all of the mass distribution bees and nukes are going to be chemically produced. To me, the the local component especially if that person's been beekeeping and raising their own bees for better or for worse in a climate very similar to your own. In my experience and the word among sustainable beekeepers especially is it matters. In fact, in this Zach Lamas presentation that I'm trying to get to telling you, he mentioned that a presentation Dr. Megan Milgabrith gave that he was at where she gave a whole presentation again up in Michigan about 
research she was doing to show that bees brought up from the southern climates, and it's nothing against the southern climates. I mean, that's a that's a weather acclimation issue. But those mass-produced bees in southern climates brought to Michigan a super-duper recipe for some reason to get a deformed wing virus in your apiary that was much more lethal than their garden variety local deformed winged virus. I know there are lots of beginners that's that are like, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't want to think about this mite and virus thing. But that's like saying I want a horse, but I don't want to do hooves. I want a dog, but I don't want to worry about ticks and a vet. It just comes with the territory. And the more we know about these things, the more options we have to do things in a more natural, organic type way. Okay, so Zach Lamas, and if he's not already Dr. Lamas, I, he he soon will be. I believe he is already Dr. Lamas. He got interested in the role of mites on adult drone bees. And he has these photographs of drones, which of course you can just pick up right off the frame and they can't do anything to you, but they do buzz really loud with just, you know, four, six mites attached to them. It's really kind of horrible to see. He has some of those slides. And he took an interest in, is there a way to use that number in an early season mite count in a way to correlate it with what the mite count would likely do late summer and fall when when the colony is kicking out their drones. They're not making any more drones. Often we're in a dearth at that time of year. And so the mites that are emerging from brood cells, they don't have drones to jump onto, which they clearly prefer. They're still trying to figure out why the mite prefer drones. It probably is something nutritional, but you know, those are, those are big beefy guys, the drones, and maybe there's just more to them. Maybe they, you know, the, maybe there's more for mites to feed on. The background of his research is that when we sample nurse bees from the brood nest, we may not be getting an accurate idea of what the mite load is in that colony and worse yet, what it's about to be. So for example, if it's a high summer, lots of drones flying, those boys could be covered up with mites. But we sample the nurse bees in the brood nest, get a number and go, oh, okay, mite count's not too bad at all. And then several weeks later, when the drones start to disappear, and less drone brood is available, those mites are going to be switching on to the nurse bees. So basically, if there are tons of mites on drones, which there seem to be from from this research, relatively speaking to the, the mite load of the colony, then when there are not drones available, they switch in mass to the nurse bees, which, as we know, is is catastrophic in five different directions to the colony. So after his initial research, and some of the presentation is kind of deep geek about the actual research and what they did, and oh, what a great guy. Even his parents came and helped <laughs> help count mites on drones, and they're literally picking up drones off the frames. He had some advice on where in the hive to pick them up, what frames to get them off of. It had, I believe, something to do with the, the age of the drones. And so he did all of these studies, and now he is involved in a, guiding a citizen science project that is going on in Virginia, where lots of beekeepers are signing up to do this counting of mites on drones in the early season, and then to do brood nest mite sampling in the fall and find out how that spring mite count on the drones 
correlates, uh, I don't know if that'd be the right word, with the colony might count come late summer and fall, which is when the truck hits the colony. So there's just so much here to unpack that got me all excited. My my brain was just buzzing after I, so to speak, after I listened to this presentation, because for one, I was marveling that of course, I knew mites prefer drone brood. I mean, that's very taught in every basic beginner bee class that if you have lots of drone brood, then that is a lot of territory for mites to reproduce in. And so some of the traditional takeaway that I had been kind of spoon fed was it's not a good thing to have a lot of drones. And this is a big deal for me because I use a lot of natural comb where I, where it doesn't have a, found, a foundationless comb is what, what I should say. And if you've ever worked with foundationless comb, when the bees get the option to draw the cell size they want, they draw an incredible amount of drone brood compared to the amount you will see if it's all foundation, which is of course sized to make worker brood to have a bigger workforce to bring honey in. And there's several reasons I've been experimenting with wild comb. And in one case, the um, the Layens hive was where I experienced it most dramatically because, of course, you've got those enormous frames, the bees, and and it and it's all. Um, it, when I first started, I didn't have any Layens size foundation until my friend Ann set me up. But when they drew all that wild comb, I have never seen so many drones in my life. Some of the problem for me with using foundationless comb is that it does produce so many drones that it makes it very hard to find the queen in some seasons of the year. Because I don't, sometimes I mark my queens, but a lot of times I just don't quite get it done. And so finding an unmarked queen in a hive with lots of drones is quite the visual challenge. Now, luckily, the drones and the queen tend to be in separate places in the hive, and that simplifies a little bit, but they don't always read the instruction book, and sometimes that queen can be absolutely anywhere or, or nowhere sometimes. When I started using foundationless comb and saw that increase in drones, my first thought was, oh no, you know, I'm creating all this territory for more mite reproduction. And in hindsight, I realized that I didn't find, I mean, I wasn't looking for it. So it, you know, it could have slipped by, but I don't recall the high, the colonies with lots of drones that are healthy, um, that's a, a big important thing because if it is a if it's like a drone layer queen, then the bees get really disheartened. It looks like <laughs> that's what it looks like, and I just noticed that a, a, a demoralized colony seems to get ill more. I realize maybe they're they look demoralized because they're already ill, but there's some combination. If you if you begin to recognize the signs of a bummed out colony, you will also be able to spot problems that are either already occurring and you can't see it or about to occur. So anyway, I'd been concerned about that with the natural comb, but I didn't see a problem with it. And I still use about half and half foundation, foundation comb and foundation less comb. The foundation less makes it really easy to do cut comb honey, you know, for home use. And it also makes it super easy to harvest the wax for candles and such, because I have plastic Actually, I have a lot of plastic foundation, not the whole frame, but just the insert in a in a wooden frame. The Pirco, which I've become just unfortunately really spoiled to because it, it's, it's tough, it's reusable, and I've never had any trouble getting my bees to draw it. I don't know what that's about because I hear people do. But anyway, 
So when Zach started his presentation, at first I was a little bit befuddled because I'm like, because he starts off, you know, we're all told that the mites prefer worker bees, but actually they prefer drone bees. And I was thinking, I was never told that. I was always told that they totally prefer drone bees. And in my mind, I just never put it together that we don't sample drone bees. We sample nurse bees and worker bees. So that was like a little light bulb moment of it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that that is a disconnect. There's definitely a dis- disconnect there in our common understanding of that process. And then he went into his whole project and then the citizen science project, and it was just fascinating. On those presentations, by the way, on that website, there is one that's a, a whole formal presentation. And then there's another, I think it says like follow-up interview or something. And it's really good too. And I believe that's the one where he goes into more detail about the citizen science project, which maybe there are other clubs out there that want to do some type of citizen science project. And now I'll tell you that the other thing that my brain was got so excited listening to the presentation. So I do some drone brood culling. I'm not as organized as one should be to do drone brood culling, which is where you let them draw a natural comb or or you put the green foundation in there that's drone comb size. And then you very carefully remove it a certain number of days later, because what you want to do is you want to get it out of there while that drone brood is capped. Because if you let all those drones emerge, they all started out that if that colony was starting out with a high mite count, then you've just exponentially increased the number of mites roaming around in there. So if you are doing drone comb culling or removal with the intent of reducing mite counts, it is vital that you are really friends and attentive to your calendar of to get that frame out in time. I believe in Europe, drone comb culling is uh, is more widely used. And, and I've done it sometimes inadvertently. I'll just, you know, I'll just pull out a natural frame and it's it's 100% drone comb and it's 100% capped and it does cross my mind okay here's a chance for me to eliminate quite a quite a few mites for this colony and so you just stick it in the freezer and then some people put it back into the colony for the bees to clean out all that dead brood i i tend to not i i don't know <laughs> i just feel bad making them do that and also i'm not sure about viral transmission when bees clean up deceased brood another way to potentially spread viruses in the hive. So I'm not fond of making the bees clean up my messes. I know that done, that's said and done often in some circles. I just, if I don't want to do it, I I don't want to make the bees do it either. So often I will just cut off, cut out that comb, feed it to the chickens or compost it. So one day I was pulling out a natural frame, no foundation, that was completely drone brood that I had put in the freezer to get rid of. I was about to break it off the comb, which is real easy, in a foundationless frame, and I was about to throw it in the chicken yard for them to pack up and have a have a great time at. They don't care if it was previously, <laughs> you know, a chicken will eat anything, so they don't care if if it's frozen and mushy. They'll eat the wax too. So as I was doing that, I bumped the frame on the side of the freezer. The entire comb busted out, hit the concrete basement floor, frozen comb and little frozen drone brood went all over the place. Ugh, luckily, it's hard frozen. So it, you know, it's like sweeping up popcorn or something. So I got the broom, swept it up. And in the dustpan, I was thinking, wait a minute, 
I have like hundreds of little white frozen drone brood in front of me. Let me look around on them to see if I see any mites attached. Then I thought, well, these have hit the floor. So maybe then the mites got knocked off. So I took a piece of unbroken comb that was laying there in a chunk. Frozen comb, you can just rub it with your hands and it just kind of flakes and shatters off. And so I put it in a in a clean container. I basically rubbed the comb between my hand, the frozen comb and the frozen drone brood and and got it in a clean container and then really looked around in there, both on the little frozen carcasses and in that light colored container to see if I saw any mites. And there was like one. Yay. Okay. That, that colony was doing great. If I, you know, if I took three handfuls of frozen drone brood carcasses and found one mite on all that, that, that seemed like at that time of year, especially like a good sign for that colony. And I was thinking in that process, in fact, I think I even texted a few bee friends and, and said, have you ever heard of anybody sampling drone brood to find out mite levels? At that time, which was a while ago, no, no one had heard of anything like that that I knew. But I thought, you know, it seems this would be a very easy way if you could correlate what it means, like if you get some of that frozen drone brood and then you break it apart so that you have a hundred brood carcasses and you do a mite count on that, how would that correlate with if you did a traditional mite count and would it be easier? Because Zach actually mentions this in his presentation. I, I don't like doing mite sampling from the brood nest. I love nurse bees. They're my favorite. They're so sweet and fuzzy and young and, and I just hate to sacrifice them to alcohol, which I, I do use alcohol because I, I feel like that's faster and more accurate. And I'm just not so sure how viable those little bees that if you shake them long enough and hard enough in powdered sugar to get the mites off, I'm not so sure how their quality of life and lifespan go after that. So I've just cut to the chase and, and use the alcohol and ask their forgiveness and ask them to take one for the team so we can we can check this colony. But anyway, it's it's hard. It's messy. You have to use alcohol. There's a bunch of bees shaking and dipping and shaking and pouring out and mite counting involved. So it's not hard, but it's it's just a process that is more labor intensive and more involved, in my opinion, than taking a, a small frame. I use the mediums, of course, you know, taking a, a small portion of frozen drone brood comb and breaking it apart and counting all that. And you, you know, have them disposed of long before they thaw. So it's not the least bit messy and they are already passed on. So you're not, you know, having to kill bees that were walking around having a good day. So I wrote some of my geekiest bee friends and said, hey, alongside Zach's Citizen Science Project, where they are sampling uh, adult drones for mites, what would y'all think about doing a similar sampling, but using fro frozen drone comb. So in Zach's experiment, they're picking up live drones. I think they pick up 40 for the, for the sample. And I believe they do an alcohol wash on the 40. And so then they're correlating that number. They might be doing it also doing a, a brood alcohol wash at the same time from the brood nest, but then they're definitely doing another count on a, with a brood nest sample in the fall. And that's what they're trying to get. You know, if you have this many, if you have this percentage of infestation in this month, then you're probably going to have this percentage infestation come late summer or fall. And so I wonder if it could be done 
that same process could be done just using the drones from culling drone brood. If anybody knows of a citizen science project or or any or or <laughs> or a university science project looking at this anywhere, please let me know because I would like to follow along with that very closely. This was a research study that to me the beauty of would have an instant usefulness to beekeepers at every level. And you can't say that about all research studies. Now, all those really weird studies that have no direct translation into everyday practice, they still often give us information that's vital. And if you read back over some of Zach Lamas's past research, he, he does some interesting research. Okay, in mosquitoes and ticks, apparently in those populations, like in a mosquito population, for example, about 20% of those mosquitoes are responsible for about 80% of the bites and tran- and virus transmission out there. And this goes along with the, the Pareto effect. Uh, the Pareto effect is, it's, it's the 80-20 rule that in, in most things, business, labor, all that, it, it's 20% of the effort that results in about 80% of the outcome. And so the gist is if you can focus on that 20%, those critical processes that make up that 20%, then you can affect 80% of what comes out the other end of whatever it is you're doing. So this is a principle that's used in all kinds of fields. Well, Zach said, could that be also true that the mites in the colony, are they like mosquitoes and ticks? And is there a, a just a super biter 20% that are responsible for more bites than, than their lazier co-workers. And apparently, just from reading the abstract, I have not read the study, apparently it's true. It's, it's true. So the, the Pareto effect apparently applies to bee mites as well. All right. Well, I know this is kind of wandery, but I just wanted to let you know about this exciting research so that if you're into this type of thing, you could follow, or I don't know, if you're in Virginia and you look him up in that project, you might could get involved uh, this coming bee season. And that I found all this through that wonderful Sustainable Beekeepers Guild out of Michigan. I just want to say I appreciate y'all so much. I appreciate what you're doing and the stuff you're putting out there for the for the rest of the country, and particularly those in the northern climates or those of us in the high elevations of southern states, which our winters sometimes have characteristics more akin to the northern winters. It's just short. It's short bursts of northern winter and then a whole bunch of in between. So so we get the a bit of the worst of all the world. <laughs> That's living in the mountains. You you have to be ready to make some weather sacrifices. And some of us just take to it natural and absolutely love every bit of it. Just not at every minute. So please look in the show note for the link to the Patreon page. It is going to lead to a free post that's open to everyone that will have some links about the Sustainable Beekeepers Guild and some of their presentations and the conference and all that. I'll just have a whole little group of of links in case you want to explore more. And while you're there, if the mood takes you, please join the other friends of Five Apple in making this podcast possible without all the advertisements that you hear on nearly every other podcast. And we can all thank the patrons for that. I hope all of you in the Northern Hemisphere are approaching a holiday season that enlightens your heart. I am sending every kind of greeting for every kind of holiday. I know I'm going to go put up some Christmas lights 
this afternoon because I love the Christmas lights. And then those of you in the Southern Hemisphere, it's, it's, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around. The Australian listeners are, I guess, in the very, I guess at the beginning of the height of their bee season. If you're listening from Australia, shoot me an email and tell me what's going on. Tell, tell me how the flip works on the, the top side and the southern side of things. It's blueridge714 at gmail.com. And patrons, watch your private podcast feed next week. I've got a special episode for all of you. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you so much for being a part of this podcast and sharing it with your beekeeping friends and clubs. That means a lot to me, and I appreciate every time that you tell someone about it. Take care. I will talk to you all soon. Bye-bye.